This episode is brought to you by Tegas, the only investment research platform built for the investor. With traditional research vendors, the diligence process is slow, fragmented, and expensive. That leaves investors competing on how well they aggregate data, not on their unique ability to analyze insights and make great investment decisions. Tegas offers an end-to-end platform with all the data you need to get up to speed on a company or on a market, with up-to-date financials, customizable models, management and culture checks, and of course, a vast and growing library of expert call transcripts. Tegas is changing the world of expert research and the investment process. Learn more and get your free trial at tegas.com slash Patrick. Today's episode is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn a 5.1% annual percentage yield with a high yield cash account. And while we can't say for certain that's the highest interest rate out there, we can say that at the time of this recording, that's higher than Robinhood, higher than SoFi, Marcus, Wealthfront, higher rate than Betterment, Capital One, Ally, Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo. I think you get the point here. If you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. Full disclosures and terms and conditions can be found in the podcast description, U.S. members only. This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers, or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. My name is Zach Buss, and today we are breaking down the largest privately owned software business in Europe, Visma. To break down the business, we're joined by Nick Humphreys. Nick is the senior partner and executive chairman of HG Capital, which is one of the leading software investors in Europe. Nick is intimately familiar with Bisma, given HG owns over 50% of the business and has been invested for over 17 years. HG initially invested as part of a take private transaction in 2006 at just a $450 million valuation. And based upon the latest recap completed in December, today the business is valued at over $21 billion. Visma is a software company with over 15,000 employees offering accounting, payroll, and HR software products for customers across the Nordic, Benelux, and Baltic regions. In 2022, it generated more than 2 billion euros in revenue, and today is doing over 2.3 billion euros in sales. The business produces over 600 million euro in EBITDA and continues to grow. Visma was founded in Oslo in 1996 and went on to grow both organically and via acquisition of 178 companies. Despite being a private business, Visma reports a robust set of financials, much like that of a public company. As part of this conversation, we discuss the business history, growth, and recent leadership transition, and 
As an investor, the business checks all the boxes as it relates to high switching costs for customers, providing a mission-critical service, and delivering strong incremental margins as a pure-play software business. We hope you enjoy the breakdown of Visma. Nick, thank you for joining us to break down this unique business in Visma. I thought maybe an appropriate place to start would be to learn a bit about yourself and your firm, given your involvement with this company. So my personal background, I'm the kind of senior partner or executive chair of HG. I've been electronic engineer, computer science engineer, kind of at the start of my career, and then relatively kind of quickly in my early 20s, moved into investing in private equity. First three years of my career, I was a generalist across multiple sectors from 90 to 93, and I was a really terrible generalist investor. And so I pretty quickly realized that if I didn't do something special, I probably wouldn't have a job. And did a classic engineers thing of going inch wide and mile deep and chose to kind of pick software and kind of tech enable services as a sector that I saw decades worth of secular growth through the 90s and 2000s. And I thought by specializing that, particularly in Europe, which is where I'm based, that would give me a kind of slightly unique or certainly kind of like a focus kind of to my investing. But so I've been 33 years in private equity and the last 30 of those 33 years investing exclusively in kind of software. I joined HG in 2001 when we were a small business of about 30 people managing about $500 million in a single fund. Today, we're about 400 people. We are the top two software investor globally, number one software investor in Europe with about $65 billion plus under management. Portfolio is about 50 software businesses with an aggregate enterprise value of around about $130 billion, growing at 20% compound. So makes you the appropriate person to educate us on this business. This not, I think where we'll start is what is the business in simple terms? And then we'll kind of get into how you guys became involved and the current state of the business. So maybe just basic, what is Visma? The simplest way of describing Visma would be that it's the European equivalent of Intuit. So it's core business is providing daily mission critical use software for small businesses. So that can be bookkeeping software, payroll software, and a lot of other modules and services that sit around those. And it's providing that typically to small and medium-sized businesses, often anywhere between few employees up to kind of about a thousand employees. And it's the leader doing that across the whole of Europe. Its genesis was in the Nordic region and it's based in Oslo. And so its strongest positions are in the kind of Nordic countries and Central and Eastern Europe. But over the last decade, it's also expanded the Benelux, Spain, Portugal, Germany, France, Italy, et cetera, as well. And so I understand this was once a public company. It's no longer public. I'd be curious to understand how you learned about the business when you got involved and then the broader history around the business as well. And how established its position in the market today. The way we think about investing at HG is to think about long-run secular trends within market sectors of software. And so we looked very carefully at software for small and medium-sized businesses 20 plus years ago, back in 2001, 2002, 2003. And we could see that that market had long-term multi-decade trends that were driving approximately three times GDP type market growth. So really three factors that drive that. One is that the number of SMBs in every Western European economy grows at about 
one to two percent per year. So there's a volume growth in the number of customers. There's very large institutions, frankly, post the war in the forties and fifties, have gradually fragmented and become more entrepreneurial businesses. The second most important factor is that a bunch of really smart guys in Silicon Valley invented this thing called the transistor and then the microprocessor 40, 50 years ago. As you're going to get more microprocessing power, of course, you can do more with software. And that has gradually filtered down through the kind of Wintel period, obviously through the SaaS period, to small and medium-sized businesses that now have way more computing power on their laptop or even on their mobile phone than they could have possibly thought about 10 or 15 years ago. And as that processing power has obviously been in the hands of small businesses, they're using more and more software, more and more data, more and more machine learning and AI to get along their businesses. And that trend is delivering about a 4 to 5% per annum growth in terms of the proliferation of software modules into small businesses. So just to pick a couple of quick examples, even today, most businesses with one or two employees wouldn't be using a particularly sophisticated invoicing or e-tax or bookkeeping type module. So there's a huge penetration in the very low end of the business market. Or if you look to the kind of mid-range business market, maybe a business of two to three to 400 people, five, six, seven years ago, they would have probably done their expense claims on an Excel spreadsheet or something pretty similar to that. Today, of course, we all use our mobile phones. We snap the receipts. It loads automatically at the general ledger, et cetera. So it's compute power that's essentially enable us to kind of provide more modules that deliver more value to those small, medium-sized customers. And that's driving about a 45% growth per annum in the market. And then the third factor is basically legislation and regulation. Every government on the planet tells you they're cutting those things. And of course, they're not. They're all increasing them all the time. And so that provides for the software provider that is doing bookkeeping or payroll an opportunity to either build new modules or to kind of price their products at kind of inflation plus in a period of time. So this is a market that grows at about 8 to 9% per annum has done for the last two decades, is doing currently, and we think will do so for the next 10 to 15 years because of those secular factors. Because you're also providing business-critical software, bookkeeping, payroll, things that have to happen for your business to stay in business, it means that it's very anti-cyclic. Basically, this is pretty much the last thing you turn off before you turn off the lights on the business and appoint the receiver. In fact, I used to say that actually even the receiver continues using this software for about a year after they've kind of been appointed. So it's very robust. It's the kind of business that will grow consistently through all market cycles and will grow through the GFC, grew through COVID, et cetera. So we've been tracking this sector and these types of businesses for a long period of time. We've made some investments in a couple of business, one called Iris Software in the UK in 2004 that was very similar to Visma. Another one called Addison Software in Germany in 2005. It was very similar to Visma. And we used those investments to build a relationship with the Visma CEO, who was at the time running a public company on the Oslo Stock Exchange. But our strategy is to just meet every good company in a sector that we want to pursue, build relationships with them. And hopefully over time, a number of those companies will want some ball of investment. And that's precisely what happened with Visma. We built a relationship from 2003 onwards, myself and the chief executive of Eastern Mine. And in 2005, they got approached by a large public company to buy them. They felt that that offer didn't really represent true fair value, even though it was at a premium to their share price. And we got called on a bilateral basis to basically provide an alternative to that trade bidder. That's what we did. 
through the spring and summer. And we ultimately kind of consummated a public to private of the business back in kind of spring of six. And now that we have the backstory of your involvement, I think you alluded to some dominant businesses that are more familiar with a US-based audience, namely Intuit. But it seems like this business has undertones of businesses like ADP and Workday and a lot of kind of the cloud native dominant uh, payroll and ARP oriented businesses in the US. What is differentiated about their suite of products beyond just their geographic focus? So I think what you tend to find in these regulated products of bookkeeping and payroll and other areas is that a business establishes a brand and a reputation for being extremely strong at compliance, i.e. providing the right tax calculations at the right time, submitting them to the right authorities, et cetera. And when you establish that degree of quality, you know, you can't get your tax calculations wrong. You can't get your payroll calculations wrong. You have to get them 100%. When you've built a business that has established that within a particular geography, it's often a go-to product for the customers because they know it works. They know they're not taking any risk with regulatory compliance. And so Visma's, I guess, number one special source is that over a 25, 30-year period, it's got a almost blemish-free record of delivering those products on time with any regulations in a way that the government and the customers both value and know that they're getting certainty of everything being correct. I mean, it's really, number one is about things being correct from a compliance point of view. The second thing they've done is then add a lot of productivity benefits for their customers into the products. So by having a bunch of products that are forming a suite, a bunch of modules that sit around that core, all feeding from the same data source, you enable the customer to potentially use the expense package and the bookkeeping package, maybe banking, maybe data collection, maybe credit checking, all from the same app. And by doing so, you massively reduce customer waste and improve customer productivity. And at the same time, you also improve fidelity of the product, i.e. by not having to rekey data, not having to move out of one application into another, you avoid errors essentially. So it's those two, I think it's been absolutely top of their game on compliance from both the government and the business point of view, and then being very thoughtful about how you increase businesses productivity and markets that they started in. And the Nordics are some of the most advanced, but also from a GDP and GDP per capita point of view, some of the most expensive markets in the world. So those markets are pretty much bound to have productivity as a very, very core requirement early on, Sweden, Norway. Finland, Denmark are not regarded as cheap places to kind of employ people. In terms of the size and scope of the business today and the trajectory of growth, obviously, as GDP per capita grows and businesses digitize, they have a naturally growing TAM. Is it largely an organic growth strategy? Just how big is the business and how has growth been driven? Yeah, so when we bought the business back in 2006 with management off the stock exchange, it was approximately $200 million revenue making around about 35 to $40 million of EBITDA. And in this business, the management are absolutely religious about cash flow and EBITDA being cash flow. So EBITDA equals cash flow, essentially. The business at the time was growing at about 6 to 7% organically, and it also added some M&A each year. Today, the business is about $2.5 billion of revenue. It's around about $800 million of EBITDA and cash flow. And the organic growth in the business is 15%. So basically, after 16, 17 years, the business is 20x the size 
in terms of EBITDA. It's more than 12 exercise in terms of revenue, but it's actually growing at two and a half times the rate that it was growing at when we bought the business from an organic revenue point of view. And organic EBITDA grows at about 20% per annum. There's a small amount of margin expansion every year. And then in addition to that, the business has continued to do a succession of relatively small tuck-in kind of M&A transactions, essentially using M&A to add high-quality SaaS products around those core cool bookkeeping and payroll applications. And so it makes about 30 to 40 relatively small acquisitions per year. Very firmly in the camp of Rule 40 as well, which obviously software investors seem to orient to with margins plus growth exceeding 40% being in the sweet spot of where you want to invest in software. I'd be curious, given the success they've had in the Nordic countries and Europe and Benelux, have they made efforts to come to North America and compete with the North American businesses? How do they think about geographic expansion and the opportunity set there? No, we're very clearly not focused on coming to North America. And there are really two drivers. One is we think Intuit is an amazing business with a very big market share and a very strong ability to defend its own territory. And so we don't want to come up and compete against a huge gorilla that is a very, very successful gorilla as well. We've got massive admiration for their business. And the second, more positive reason is that we see a very large TAM spread across not only 20 plus countries in Western Europe, but also across Central Eastern Europe. LATAM, we've also kind of moved into in a, a fairly significant way through MA in the last four or five years and potentially in due course in other geographies. So business specialization is really into smaller geos where you need to understand the nuances of kind of local regulation and local competition, a lot of the depth. And frankly, we want to avoid the largest markets in the world, like the US and China, where they're already very, very good players. And we frankly don't think we would add a lot. And then from a competitive perspective, do they tend to compete in specific verticals broadly across their different suite of products? I'm just trying to get a better sense for the competitive landscape that they operate within. Yes, the competitive landscape is towards the higher end, the larger customer base, uh, the likes of Microsoft with its Dynamics products. There's also in the past been applications from people like SAP, a little bit less so kind of Oracle. And then I say in each of its geographies, there are typically many, several, maybe even a dozen plus local competitors that have good understanding of kind of local markets, local regulation, local nuances. Some of those can be verticalized and some of them might be slightly more horizontal in payroll, for example, but it's a kind of combination of the bottom end of the big guys, if you want. Microsoft, SAP, et cetera, and then local players that are focused more on the kind of SMB market. From a go-to-market perspective, much of the largest and growing software business today are cloud native. I don't have a sense of on-premise versus SaaS and how you think about this business. And perhaps if there was a transition at some point in time, just given how rich the business's history is. Yeah, that was one of the kind of fundamental decisions we made around about 12, 13 years ago now. So back in the GFC, you know, the tail in the GFC, we had a big, big decision to make. Now, looking back, it seems completely obvious that cloud and SaaS would win. But at the time, we had a big decision to make about whether we would reinvest a lot of our profits, which is not a typical thing to do for kind of private yeah. equity firms, whether we'd invest a lot of the company's profits back into developing both organically and through M&A, SaaS applications. We've got a very, very technically qualified management team that come out of a tech and engineering background. So this is not a business just run by financiers. It's basically a business run by 
entrepreneurs and technologists. And so I think they frankly understood the potential long-term implications of kind of SaaS and cloud well ahead of most people in Europe. And so we made very big commitments, investing substantial parts of the annual EBITDA back into SaaS and cloud development back in 2009, 2010 onwards, because we've got a number of applications across a number of geographies. That investment wasn't just a kind of one-off product or two products in a particular geo. It was actually across multiple products, across multiple countries. And so it's taken us a decent period of time to basically convert those bases to be pure SaaS. That's meant that in that transition period, roughly 2010 through 2016, 2017, the business was growing at a slightly slower rate as it transitioned by its revenue model to subscription and also obviously invested heavily in the technology to have world-class products. But having done so and done so early, it's put the business in an amazing position in the last three or four or five years. And that's really why the organic growth of the business has accelerated significantly from high single digits to kind of mid-teens over the last five or six years as the business has now become 80, 90% plus pure SaaS. And then by that, I mean modern multi-tenant SaaS, not BS SaaS, what describe it, which you see a fair amount of. And as we've done that, you know, the business is clearly benefiting from what we all know the SaaS model and, and cloud provides, which is more access to your customers, your customers having more live data, more live information on their business, your customers being able to use in-app applications and to use kind of additional features and additional products. So all of those things provide the business with a benefit, its customers with a benefit as a result, frankly, they spend more. So our cross-sell and our upsellability from our core products has increased significantly as the business has become 90% plus QSS. So with a business like this, there are clearly structural and secular tailwinds that are benefiting its growth. They've navigated their competitive landscape, it seems like, incredibly well. Presumably, there have been mistakes along the way. No story is perfect. Are there any that you can think of that are an interesting story in regards to lessons learned? Yeah, I'd say the business makes mistakes all the time. And I think part of the idea of innovation and a culture of entrepreneurship is not being afraid to make mistakes. So if we go back to those early days of thinking about how we build cloud products, unfortunately, we can list several products where we invested, you know, 5 million, 10 million plus dollars, and we didn't get the product we wanted, or we didn't get the commercial results we wanted. I think the bit we have to embrace is that in order to be successful in new technologies, you're almost certain to never get it right first time. And so Visma has this kind of entrepreneurial culture of investing in many ways in these big transitions. So we made 10, 15, 20 relatively small bets on SaaS and SaaS products and SaaS product development. Sure, we got some of them wrong and they wasted in invert commas 10, 20 million, 30 million dollars, a decent proportion of our profits at the time. But of course, the ones that were successful provided us foundations for the future of the business. And we then invested in those much more significantly and built them to be, you know, very major parts of our business today. So it's almost that kind of, when you're not really sure what's going to work back in 2010, 2011, be prepared to invest in kind of multiple areas, watch very carefully for those that get product market fit, for those that have good product quality, et cetera, and then put your money behind those that are working and be prepared to acknowledge that some of those bets won't work and you need to turn them off and put your money elsewhere. So Lots of examples of that from 2012, 13, 14 period. And I would say that same attitude has applied over the last 
four or five years to kind of ML and AI, which is, again, I don't think anybody is bright enough. Maybe they are in California or elsewhere. We don't think anybody's bright enough to tell you this is 100% the AI platform or AI application or whatever you should definitely be using for all your products. So we've made a whole series of relatively small bets, but, you know, 10, 15, 20 different investments in those areas across the business, all of them kind of multi-million dollar bets. And some of them won't work and some of them will work spectacularly well. And our entrepreneurial mindset, we were happy with that. And we then obviously go and put bigger money behind the ones that have been successful. I think we've highlighted the financial profile of the business and the growth. You talked about a team that comes from an engineering background first, rather than a host of financiers. How big is the team to scale to a business of this size? So the total business is about 14, 15,000 people. And that grows at high single digit number kind of every year. So we're really pleased that in the knowledge economies of kind of Western Europe, we can add thousands of employees, you know, over an investment lifetime. We think that's good for us, good for the economy, good for those people, obviously, as well. And a lot of those people have equity in the business, as well as obviously good and, and high quality jobs. In terms of the senior management team, it's around about 15 people. Most of those people have been with the business for very long periods of time. So the chairman today is a guy called Oyston Moen, and Oyston was the chief executive back in 1997. Originally, he was the chief exec in 2006 when we took the business private together, and his journey has lasted all the way through chief exec till about three years ago, and then became chairman. The lady, Kinamaretta Heveren, who took over Oyston's chief exec, has been with the business for a decade. Several of the management team joined the business as graduate trainees in their early 20s and are now in the most senior positions in the business. So it's a business that has a relatively young team. The average age of the management team is in the late 30s or early 40s. But those people have often spent 10 or 15 years with the business already because they joined it at a very early age. And then on top of that, we have a frankly fantastic track record of retaining entrepreneurs when we buy their businesses and those entrepreneurs becoming key managers within FISMA growing their own business, but also helping to grow other businesses over time as well. So we pride ourselves on being an incredibly entrepreneurial management team still. It's a pretty lean business for the scale it's at. And that entrepreneurial mindset is attractive to us as investors because clearly working very well from a growth and returns point of view, but it's also super attractive if you're an entrepreneur that is thinking about selling a business, there really is no better home for a high growth SaaS entrepreneur in Europe than deciding to go invest with Visma and become part of that family. As you've highlighted, the switching costs for an enterprise are relatively high, just given how entrenched a product like this gets within their operations. In the context of that, you presumably have a lot of pricing power, but how do you think about price and how much you take on an annual basis? I think you have to be very clear and very conservative with how you think about price. I think it's pretty much the oldest private equity trick in the book to go buy a sticky business and whack prices up. And I think if you're going to hold a business for three or four years and then sell it to make a quick buck and a quick IRR, that's clearly a strategy that could work. What we'd prefer to do is to hold great businesses for long periods of time. And we've been investing in Visma since 2006. So for nearly 17 years at this point, if you're going to be a 17 year plus owner, you know, Buffett-esque type, very, very long-term compounder, you don't want to take short-term decisions. You want to make long-term decisions. So we basically try and price it kind of inflation plus uh, a small amount. We only change that where we think we've got value that we've added through new modules 
or new ways of kind of helping the customers to improve their productivity. And we're trying to take a very long-term view of providing customers with extremely high value, extremely high productivity, for which, of course, we deserve to get paid well, and we do, but we don't think we're in any way in that abusive pricing power. We think that's just the wrong way to run businesses if you intend to be a long-term shareholder. And is it an enterprise license model to customers that charge per seed? Do they grow with the business as their needs expand? I'm trying to better appreciate the revenue model on like a unit economic basis with a particular customer. Yeah, it's changed over time. So obviously, if you go back 10 or 15 years, there was a license model with kind of maintenance 15 plus years ago. We moved that model to be a subscription license per seat around about 10, 15 years ago. And that applied across most of the business eight, nine, 10 years ago. And then gradually, as forms of usage have become both a more common way of thinking about pricing products and also more applicable to the customer because on a SaaS model and an online cloud model, you can obviously kind of measure usage in, in different ways that you couldn't measure in the old offline world. So as SaaS has become a larger proportion of the business, we're basically moving the business to be much more usage-based for different types of products that will apply in different ways. So usage is often measured to do with a specific product and, and how it's used. But essentially, the vast majority of pricing is moving towards being usage-based based on data and API calls and those kind of things. And then in terms of capital allocation, I know you spoke to some token acquisitions, but a business like this produces more cash than it probably knows what to do with. How do you guys think about redeploying that cash back into the business versus distributing it out to its shareholders? Yeah, so historically, I'd say we've consumed most of the annual cash with a combination of reinvestment in the SaaS product development. That was more so eight, nine, 10 years ago than it is today because we've now done that development. And then the remainder of the cash has been invested in accretive M&A. But Visma has basically followed that model and believes it can acquire high quality, high growth SaaS businesses at prices that are attractive to the entrepreneurs that are selling, but also accretive to its model going forward. So most of the cash has been redeployed in buying businesses of high quality to bolt on to the existing core infrastructure. And then how do you think about the muscle to build a core enterprise software product versus the team needed to identify acquisition targets, integrate them, and then grow them within the business, which presumably there was a transition at some point where they had both of those strengths, but from the start, presumably they were largely building their own products. And I'm just curious how you think about that from a culture perspective. They've really had both of those attributes pretty much all the way through. So the actual genesis of the business is a bit of a long ago story, but the business was originally in really two parts when Oyston joined in 1997. There was a business providing some SMB software of the type we've been describing. And then there was also a larger division that provided software for the marine industry, which he kind of inherited. And bluntly, he's a smart guy. And right at the top of the market in 1999, he sold the marine software business to a large European telco. You might debate why they wanted to buy that, but that's a slightly separate point. And he sold it for an incredibly good value. He got massively criticized by the stock market and analysts for taking cash and not taking telecom shares. But of course, two years later, when all the telecom stocks crashed, he was pretty glad and his shelves were pretty glad that he'd taken the cash. So the business started as a approximately 20 million revenue SMB software business. And by the time he'd sold the marine business, he had a think of the order of about 100 million euros of cash on the balance sheet. 
and then used that cash to go and buy more businesses that were like the SMB software business that he owned. So from day one, pretty much Oyston has had to balance the growth of a SMB software business with utilizing what at the time was quite a lot of cash, 100 million for a business with 20 million of revenue, 100 million cash on the balance sheet. And he went out and essentially bought similar SMB businesses, but in other countries. So not only has the M&A been a core part of their strategy from like 97, 98 onwards, he's had to think about also doing M&A in different geographies as well. So it wasn't a single huge geography like the US where you could buy a business with the same culture, the same language. Norway is a relatively small country, very good country, but a small country, 5 million people approximately. And so from day one, he knew that he'd have to be kind of international and started making acquisitions in Sweden, Denmark, Finland, et cetera. And so in terms of leadership, I know you highlighted that they had a transition. What is Oyston's role with the company today? And how do you think about that transition and the prospects for a new chapter for the business? So the transition of Oyston to chairman and Moretta into the CEO role was about three and a half years ago now. It's performing incredibly well. I think it's been a amazingly kind of well-handled succession. Oyston continues to be executive chair and contributes significantly to the board, to strategy, to M&A, and sits as a chairman on a number of the divisions of the business as well. Moretta clearly is a CEO driving the business and driving 15 thousand people to be successful every day. And in a lot of ways, the numbers speak for themselves. The business has got all-time record organic revenue growth. It's got all-time record organic EBITDA growth. And it's continuing to do 30, 40 acquisitions a year that are great quality businesses and, and very, very kind of synergistic. So it's not recent. This this happened long enough ago that we can say that the transition has been super successful and the team that Moretta has grown has taken on the mantle that Weston developed originally and taken it to the next level at this point. Perhaps this is somewhat of a leading question, but forgive me for asking it, but a business like this with the characteristics it has would be incredibly highly valued in the public markets. It's a company that's been public before. From a culture perspective, there are clearly differences in being public versus private. And perhaps maybe a broader question about your portfolio and how you think about it. When is it appropriate for a company like this to become public again or at all? Yeah, it's something that we debate and we think about on a pretty regular basis. And it's something that may happen sometime in the future. So far, we've been very fortunate to be able to kind of keep Bisma in private hands and majority owned by ourselves and our clients. And clearly, that's been a great thing for our clients because they've made a consistent kind of high 20s, low 30s IRR over 17 years. So it's been good for them, but also I think good for the customers and good for the business. Clearly, the business is in better health, frankly, now than it was when we bought it back in kind of 06. So I've Hope it's a decent example of private equity investing for the long term, investing in growth, investing in good products and customer service and all those kind of things. But again, we're not negative to the public market. And it's the kind of question we ask ourselves. And I think is likely to happen as we continue to kind of scale. There'll be some point at which we think it's appropriate to be a public company. And we clearly will look at that pretty seriously over the next few years. Bluntly, you know, we are pretty negative about going public at the peak of the market in 19, 2021, we had SPAC offers and we had lots of banks telling us it was a great time to go public. But having done this for 30 odd years and Oyster and Moretta having done it for 25, 30 years, we just didn't want to be going public at the top of the market. We didn't know where the top was, but we, it was pretty obvious that somewhere in 2021 was going to be near the top. This is an investment where we're going to be invested for the next four, five, six, seven years, whether it's public or not. And so we really wanted to go 
public at a time when maybe the market was a little bit more modest, when things weren't quite so heated, and then we can kind of grow into a decent valuation over time and you can make money alongside public company shareholders making money and frankly, everybody feeling good about it. I'd be curious in the context of this investment, but your broader portfolio, how you think philosophically about your ability to hold businesses for what is a rather long period of time relative to what I think your hold period would be for your competition. Is there something unique about your fund structure, your approach? How is that possible? And how do you think about investing from that perspective? Yeah, so it's something that we've done not all the time, but in a number of businesses that we felt had similar kind of characteristics. So Visma is 17 years. We have a business called Iris Software that I referred to earlier, where we've been investors since 2004. So that's 19 years. We have a number of other investments where we've managed to keep our clients invested for over a decade with similar compounding characteristics. And I guess it starts from the fundamental premise that if I ran a very, very large pension fund that was trying to provide long-term annuity pensions for millions of pensioners, what I'd want to try and do is big the stock market by a healthy margin, but to do that very consistently with very, very low volatility over very long periods of time. That's how I'd want my pension to be invested. So with that philosophy, I guess two things came to mind for us. One was we need to communicate with our clients very clearly 15 plus years ago that that is our philosophy and hopefully they would join us in thinking that's a good idea. Many of them are kind of state pension funds that manage pensions for firefighters, teachers, et cetera. So I think on behalf of their retirees, they thought that was a good idea. And we've managed to kind of show them that we have a fund structure that allows us to basically hold a business for a long period of time in an existing fund, typically kind of eight, nine, 10 years, if we believe the business is doing well. And then occasionally, if the business has got too large for that fund, we have a small, medium, and large fund that we can essentially move a business from one fund to another. And we do that with lots of Chinese walls and with an appropriate amount of governance that our clients are kind of happy with. So not something we do all the time at all. 80, 90% of our investments tend to be kind of shorter and we'll sell them to a strategic or we may IPO them or sell them to a kind of financial buyer. But for a small proportion of our investments that are, we hope, the very best quality, we've convinced our clients that it was a good thing to do this. And they thankfully backed us a decade or more ago to do it. And it's been, I think, very good for them and for the other shareholders as well. I say what we do have is this very rigorous discipline, though, of you have to kind of almost hold two concepts in your mind at the same time. One is the idea of business being able to grow secularly for decades. And you have to constantly check that you're not getting enamored with your own rhetoric. And that you have to be able to self-check that very on a very regular basis. And we do that in various ways, but we try not to let ourselves get carried away or, or too enamored. And then the second is, whilst thinking long-term, we believe you do have to have three-year, four-year plans for a business and to drive value creation over that three to four-year period. And the reason that's so important is a huge amount of research by McKinsey and Bain and others that suggests if you have a investment period or a focus period that is quarters, you'll never make an investment because most investments take longer than that to pay back. If you have an investment period that you're thinking about that is 20 years, bluntly, we'll all be retired or dead by the time we get to see whether the answer was correct or not. So that's way too long. So you need a period that is long enough that you can make investments that have two or three or four year payback, but short enough, i.e. three, four, five years, that you can all remember what you promised yourself you're going to deliver and hold yourself to account. And there's a lot of evidence that says three to five years, three to four years is the right kind of period. So even though we've been invested in Visma for 16 years, 17 years, each 
one of those three to four year periods is almost a distinct investment proposition. Back in 2006, when we invested, it was about cleaning the business up in certain ways, improving some margins and starting to get some growth. 2010 to 2014 was the start of the SaaS journey, investing heavily in SaaS, et cetera. Right now, it's about more international expansion and reaping some of the benefits for our investments in machine learning and AI that we made four or five years ago. So each of those four or five year periods has a very distinct plan. And we think very, very deeply about what that plan is going to be and frankly, making it very different to the last four or five years plan. And then Nick, when you kind of consider this business, what are the biggest risks that it faces? Is there anything in particular that keeps you up at night? The revenue model is obviously very high quality, 90% plus recurring, very sticky products and mission critical, diversified across many geographies and across different customer cohorts. I think at the end of the day, it's probably around management and culture. And I think it, lots of businesses that do multiple acquisitions tend to have a culture of very heavy integration. And you mentioned synergies and integration before in the context of M&A. Visma is much more kind of nuanced and much, much more light touch. So I think the reason that the business has continued to kind of grow so well is because it's got a whole host of entrepreneurs. We view it as like the world's best entrepreneur ecosystem. And we try not to integrate those businesses heavily. We have certain things that are absolute standards. So obviously financial reporting, cash flow, cybersecurity, development practices, all these things are things that we rigorously want to adhere to because we believe they're going to underlying hygiene and quality factors for our customers. But things like go-to-market and product development and product management are things that we vest still very much in the entrepreneurs and the people actually running their smaller business unit. And that gives us this nice balance of a business that is scaled, but it still feels very much like an entrepreneurial, innovative culture. So I think that's the number one thing that we have to maintain as we scale is keep that entrepreneurial spirit because that's what's actually driving the superior organic revenue growth, frankly. Consider your multi-year period investment in Visma and what you've learned. What are lessons that you borrow from this business that apply to others in your portfolio? And from an operator perspective, what are some of the things that Visma does well that you think that some other companies that you guys may look at or invest in should apply to their businesses? It's a great question. And it's a very broad answer, to be honest with you, because not only is the business high quality, it's also in markets that are generally kind of more advanced than most other markets globally. So the Nordics, for reasons we've talked about before, are very advanced in terms of mobile penetration, internet penetration, AIML. They're at the forefront of a number of those technological advances over history. And as a result, it means that the businesses in the Nordics tend to be ahead of, just from a market perspective, ahead of most of the geos in Europe and Central Eastern Europe and Blatham and the other areas where we operate. So that allows us to almost see the future. To be honest with you, it's a bit like getting in Marty McFly's car. We get to go to Oslo and we take a trip into the future by four or five years and we get to be able to get a look at some of those things. We obviously have to think about whether they will apply in other geographies or not. So just because something works in Norway, it doesn't mean it automatically works in Spain or Portugal or Italy. But often we're able to kind of twist and understand that because we've got 27, 30 different languages and backgrounds within kind of HG. So we're able to understand some of those local nuances. But we basically go and take some of those ideas and those things we've seen and try and apply them to other countries. So the most obvious ones at the very, very high level were 
we were experimenting in 2008, 2009 with SaaS in Visma. And we then rolled that out in different geos slightly later than that, because those other geos were frankly less of the adoption curve and therefore we'd have been too early. We've been experimenting with AI and ML in Visma for six, seven years plus, and have a number of products for many years now that are already based on those technologies. Again, we've rolled that out maybe in the last two or three or four years to most of the other geographies that we operate in. We've looked at financial services as kind of add-ons for our customers in the Nordics, and then thought about how that applies in other geographies. So it's generally around looking at products that are working, understanding the local nuances, and then thinking about where that can apply in other countries, typically a few years later because they've got a technology adoption. To answer the second part of your question about what Visma is terrific at, I think it really is around product development and product quality and launching and innovating on new products for its customers. And it's development processes. We, you know, we benchmark these things very carefully. It's software development lifecycle. It's software development processes we think are globally best in class. They're up there with businesses on the West Coast of the States. And that's measured on key KPIs that we can get a benchmark. I think the second thing is this kind of entrepreneurial spirit. I don't know any other business that has literally hundreds of ex-entrepreneurs that ran their own business that have sold out. Usually that movie says they move on after a year or so and go do something else. And yet five years later, 75, 80% of those entrepreneurs are still working in Bisma, enjoying themselves, building great products, having more customers, making money as shareholders, et cetera. So I think those two things are what really make the business stand out. Well, Nick, I appreciate you sharing the story of Visma with us. I think from a business quality perspective, it clearly checks all the boxes. It'll be interesting to see how the continuation of their growth strategy and acquisition and international product expansion goes. But clearly, this is a business that should the markets get another opportunity to own, presumably will value a very handsome one. Thank you very much, Shadif, for your time, Zach. To find more episodes of breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 